Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Thursday. We are glad you are here on the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And if you detect just the slightest bit of jealousy in my voice, it's because this is Jim's last day before going on vacation for over a week. So, Jim, have a great, great time. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Uh, all the listeners can know that I will be in the safest place in America, South Carolina, where there's, you know, actually, where we're going is probably not too bad. But uh, yeah, yeah, after, you know, months and months of not being able to see uh, my parents and folks down there, we're going to uh, we're going to make the visit and hopefully I'll be back on Monday, a week from Monday. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. All right. Well, let's talk about our good martini here. And this uh, news actually broke on Wednesday. And that is that Senator Tim Scott and his allies have put together their police reform bill. And this is good in a couple of different ways. First of all, it doesn't take an overly heavy handed approach, but it does address some of the most critical issues. Uh, Tim Scott and uh, his legislation, which he's been working on for a long time. He didn't just start on this uh, since the George Floyd killing. He's been working on this for years. This legislation would provide much more funding for body cameras. As you'll hear in the clip here, he says that has been critical. Having video of these incidents has made it very clear what did and did not happen. He's also very clear on the creation of a database on some level, whether it's local or state or national. So officers who have misconduct are known in other parts of the country. So when they try to get another job, that's going to be easily accessible. So it doesn't necessarily solve every issue, but it solves a lot of them. Uh, but yesterday, as he introduced the bill, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois decided that uh, he thought this was a token effort. He said, let's not do something that is a token, half-hearted approach. Let's focus instead on making a change that will make a difference in the future of America. Well, that's not the first time Tim Scott and the term token have been used together since he is the lone black Republican in the U.S. Senate. A lot of folks, of course, don't like that fact and they think that he's a sellout in some ways. So Tim Scott addressed both of those things, the content of the bill and the idea that this was some sort of token measure in his floor remarks on Wednesday. But today, this is a token piece of legislation. Because I think it's important that we stand up and be counted and make sure that we have more resources available for every single officer to have a body camera. Because as we saw in Georgia, with Mr. Arbery, had it not been caught on video. In Walter Scott's case, had it not been caught on video. In George Floyd's case, had it not been caught on video, we might be in a different place. But on the other side, they're wanting to race bait on tokenism. While this legislation will provide resources for body cameras, for anti-lynching, for de-escalation training. But no, we can't concern ourselves with the families I sat with at the White House yesterday and in my office yesterday. Instead, we want to play politics because this is 2020 and we're far more concerned about winning elections than we are having a serious conversation on reform in this country. No, we would rather have a conversation about tearing this country apart, making it a binary choice between law enforcement and communities of color instead of working for the American people. 
So, Jim, we should point out that uh, Dick Durbin has apologized, claims he thinks the process laid out by Mitch McConnell was a token process, not anything that Tim Scott has done. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Tim Scott, I think, uh, putting forward reasonable, uh, popular uh, suggestions here that he says line up pretty well with what the House Democrats have done. And uh, the idea that some people might want to uh, ignore this issue in terms of solving it, but would rather have it for a campaign issue, that rings true to me because that happens with a lot of issues. Yeah, look, one of the one of the I was about to say some if we were a better country, Tim Scott would be perceived as a true national leader on these issues and the sort of figure who could build trust and a, a you know a sense of good faith efforts by by everybody on Capitol Hill that he would be the guy people would turn to in circumstances like this. And they would heed what he was saying um, because he is, you know, as, as plain as the nose on his face, so to speak, that he is an African-American man. He has described the number of times Capitol Police have not believed that he is a member of Congress back when he was in the House or a U.S. Senator. Um, and he has lived this. So he is not someone who is going to downplay the, uh, downplay the issue or pretend the issue, the problem doesn't exist in order to placate white America. On the other hand, because he is a Republican, because he is a conservative, and because he's been a consistent conservative on a whole bunch of issues, a whole bunch of white Americans who might tune out a Barack Obama or other African-American leaders in politics will listen to Tim Scott and will say, okay, this is not an effort by Tim Scott to, uh, to, to stir up racial divisions. This is not an effort to play politics. This is not knee-jerk opposition to anything that the Trump administration is doing. This is a good faith effort to build a better country. And if Tim Scott says these steps are needed, those of us who are not African-Americans at the very least should hear him out and say, okay, this, you know, we trust him. We, we don't think he's going to, you know, make crazy ideas or go off on willy nilly uh, steps to, to win over praise from the media or anything like that. You know, this is generally what, if Tim Scott really believes this stuff, and if he really believes this stuff, maybe we should too. So I, there's still hope that this will get to this point. Uh, I think this definitely has raised his profile. I think there has been, um, you know, the media is taking him a bit more seriously on this. They're turning to him. They recognize as the only African-American uh, Republican senator that he's kind of in this unique role. Um, and maybe this will be, you know, a big part of Tim Scott's legacy, that ultimately he will be someone who uh, could bridge the divide and bring together people who are ordinarily very suspicious of each other. I think we have a ways to go, and I think one of the side effects of the imperial presidency, uh, one of the side effects of a national political culture that is so obsessed with whatever the president is doing, is that it squeezes out opportunities for other figures like Tim Scott to kind of step into the spotlight and take this kind of leadership role. So we will see what happens. I think this uh, legislation, I've seen nothing in it that makes me think this is a bad, you know, as a poison pill or or anything we, uh, you know, the other conservatives would object to, the ensuring equal justice under the law can and should be a conservative cause. And hopefully this, uh, this legislation will get us one step closer to that goal. No, that's exactly right. And even if Dick Durbin was misinterpreted, there's a lot of other people that definitely believe that Tim Scott is a token. And Jim, 
you and I are on social media enough to know that uh, racism exists and it exists from all different political perspectives. But one that doesn't get talked about very much, we mention it once in a while, is how black conservatives are treated. Tim Scott, Clarence Thomas, Ben Carson, and it rarely gets called out. So the fact that it did get called out a little bit uh, yesterday is, is a good thing. Uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, if you go back to the State of the Union, which I realize feels like it was about a year and a half ago now, uh, President Trump specifically singled out Senator Scott for his work on opportunity zones. I think they used to be called enterprise zones back in the Jack Kemp era, about how he's trying to revitalize uh, predominantly black communities and providing more opportunities is going to be a way for growth and, and stability in addition to uh, fostering better relations with police. So Tim Scott is a guy who deserves a lot more credit and uh, hopefully uh, people are starting to see that now. It's time for us to kind of grapple with the fact that so much of our political culture, the campaign structure, the media structure, um, to a certain extent what people respond to, whether you have donors, uh, online activists, offline activists, Look, a lot of them, you know, solutions don't nece aren't necessarily what people respond. That's not necessarily what gets people to give money. That's not necessarily what gets people to rise to the occasion. You know, this, this is not necessarily how you raise your profile. You know, we, we have a whole bunch of really bad incentives. And Tim Scott is attempting to overcome that. He's not doing this because, you know, there are not, the people who hate him aren't going to like him anymore because he's doing this. This is not a way to win over uh, people who have already decided to dismiss him as a token, et cetera, et cetera. The only reason he's doing this is because he really thinks there's going to be some sort of, you know, actual improvement in society. And uh, with any luck, we will, you know, it will actually get there. Um, but a lot of these times we have people who are, kind of, who are kind of swimming against the stream of what, let's just say, cynical politics would do. The more, the more you try to throw gasoline on the fire these days, it seems the more that both the media and the electorate at large may reward you for that. Way too many people would rather have the issue than have mm -hmm. the issue solved. I remember back in uh, the mid-90s, a lot of uh, Republicans were kind of upset because Clinton finally signed welfare reform in an election year, 1996. And then all of a sudden, they're like, well, what are we going to run on now? Worry about something else. There's plenty else in the Clinton record. In fact, if you just wait a year or two, there's a <laughs> lot more in the Clinton record. You could. If only we knew. All right. Well, let's move on to our bad martini. And once again, Jim, we're not too happy with the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. We already talked about kind of the judicial activism that we saw in the majority opinion on the Bostock case uh, related to the Civil Rights Act earlier this week. Now we see a curious decision with respect to DACA. That's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The Dreamers, as they're sometimes known, uh, back in 2012 in an executive order, President Obama who had said he couldn't do this by executive order, uh, gave legal protection uh, for children who came here as illegals uh, through no fault of their own, came with their parents and so forth. And so the question now, of course, from the Trump administration is, should this continue? They argued that since it was an executive order that probably wasn't constitutional in the first place, they can rescind it. But the Supreme Court says no. A deeply divided Supreme Court blocked the Trump administration Thursday, this is USA Today, from ending a popular program that allows nearly 650,000 young undocumented immigrants to live and work in the United States without fear of deportation. Chief Justice John Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion, called the Department of Homeland Security's action, quote, arbitrary and capricious and therefore unlawful. The ruling was five to four with the court's four liberal justices agreeing and the four more conservative justices in dissent. But there was a concurring opinion, and here's where it gets even more weird. This is Robert's writing, first of all, in the official majority opinion. We do not decide whether DACA or its rescission 
are sound policies. We address only whether the agency complied with the procedural requirement that it provide a reasoned explanation for its action. Here, the agency failed to consider the conspicuous issues of whether to retain forbearance and what, if anything, to do about the hardship to DACA recipients. But Sonia Sotomayor, in the concurring opinion, Jim, says, no, it's actually the court's uh, responsibility to make sure that this program stays in place and never goes away. So I think they're both wrong here. I don't know that it's up to the Supreme Court to decide that if something's unconstitutional, that it has to keep it in place until it can be wound down successfully. It's either constitutional or it's not. And then Sotomayor just completely goes off the rails. What do you think? Yeah, I was going to say that there are a lot of people who had very cynical explanations for why John Roberts made his infamous decision on the Obamacare and whether it should be repealed before uh, the 2012 election. Um, there was generally a sense that, or at least the, imp the impression would be that there was a 5-4 majority to argue that no, the individual mandate did not meet constitutional muster. The government, the federal government does not have the power to make you purchase this. The administration had sworn to high heaven that it wasn't really a tax uh, when they were trying to pass the legislation. And then once it was challenged in court, it said, no, 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 this is, a, this is just a tax, you know, and that this was the sort of thing where the Supreme Court, you know, was going to jump in and say, all right, no, you just said this wasn't a tax during passage. This is the federal government trying to assert an authority that's found nowhere in the Constitution. No, you can't. And then somewhere along the line, Roberts switched. And this happened as Harry Reid, one of our all-time favorites on this podcast, and a whole bunch of other Democrats argued that not only would they be outraged if the Supreme Court struck down Obamacare right before the 2012 election, uh, basically taking away the signature accomplishment of the Obama administration's first term, that basically the legitimacy of the court was at stake and that this would be seen as a nakedly political decision because, you know, there hadn't been any other nakedly political decisions by uh, the liberal majority on the court. No, no, no. That was always just, you know, good, smart, wise jurisprudence. It was always the conservatives who were crazy and, and all that kind of stuff. And Roberts flipped. And a lot of folks said, look, he was afraid of the... Uh, uh, being remembered as the man who killed Obamacare. Uh, he knew his reputation would get trashed in the legal community. You know, progressives would tear him a new one and he would be, you know, forever known as a terrible chief justice instead of a great chief justice because they really, really were upset with, you know, with him being the deciding vote. So he flipped. And there were always some people who said, no, 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 this is genuinely what John Roberts thought. And he wasn't steered or influenced by outside arguments. And, and all. he wasn't blackmailed, so to speak, that, uh, you know, and decisions like this, one, will make more and more conservatives think of John Roberts as a bad choice, that he is, you know, maybe it's not a full-on David Souter. Uh, and in fact, most people would say, if you look at Roberts' overall record, he, you know, votes with the conservative majority, uh, you know, enormous amount of the time. But there are a couple of really high-profile decisions where, you know, quote-unquote conservative, strict constructionist, Republican-appointed, however you want to characterize them, end up voting with the other justices. Uh, Obergfell on gay marriage with Anthony Kennedy. There's this, this process in which conservatives are like, hey, wait a minute, we nominated these guys. We thought they were going to vote a certain way. Now, heading into this, there was an argument made that the administration had not, basically they'd been sloppy in how they'd done this. They had not basically laid out, you know, that if you're going to try to, you know, undo a decision of a previous administration, you can do it, but you can't do it for arbitrary and capricious reasons as the, uh, uh, as, as the law states. And they're basically the more well thought out, the more well justified, the more precedent you can point to, the better your chances have of having your decision um, get through legal review. Going back to the early days of, of the Trump administration, Trump campaigned on a Muslim ban, 
right? And a lot of people said, that's never going to pass muster. You cannot say we're going to keep these people with this religion from coming into this country. And so once the administration had to put it into place, the Department of Justice and people in immigration said, no, no, it's not an immigration, it's not a Muslim ban. We're just, you know, not allowing people from these particular countries because we can't verify that authorities on their side can verify the identities of these people coming into the country. And it was like six heavily Muslim countries and one that wasn't. And of course, there were lots of heavily Muslim countries that were not applied by this ban. So this was the argument of the administration of like, look, we're not judging people based on their religion. We're judging people based on whether their country of origin has the, the kind of precautions and procedures in place to keep terrorists from coming to the country. And they lost some fight. And then Trump, you know, got, went on on Twitter, some Twitter tirade and said, no, this is a Muslim ban, right? And the whole, he completely undermined the legal argument that his own administration was trying to make in court. When Trump does things like this, he makes it harder for his own, legal, for his own lawyers representing his administration to say, no, 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 we're not doing this for these bad reasons that you believe. We're doing it for these sound legal reasons that we've laid out in these, uh, in our argument that we've laid out in these briefs. You know, it's, it's not what it looks like. And then Trump usually will come out and say, yes, it looks exactly what it's looked like. Trump tweeted earlier today, do you get the feeling the Supreme Court doesn't like me? And from, yeah, <laughs> yes, Mr. President, I do. I, I think, and some of that is on them. There's a block of four justices who will always vote in, op, you know, who basically see you as the devil and will vote in opposition to you. But you also do so in a way that makes it hard for strict construction as judges who believe like, well, if Congress should, wants the law to, be, to mean a certain thing, they should say so. And if they don't write it clearly, then it cannot be necessarily interpreted one way or the other. Um, it's basically go back, to, go back to square one, go back, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200, write the law clearer, and then we will be able to say, yes, the law means this, um, which is kind of what happened with the decision earlier in this week. Uh, you're going to be a lot of frustration in, in conservative circles over this. I, I think while there's probably just enough of a fig leaf of justification for John Roberts to do this, it is basically going to be interpreted by a good portion of the conservative grassroots, very understandably, that the Supreme Court has ruled that Barack Obama can do things through executive order and Donald Trump cannot rescind them through executive order, which basically means Democratic presidents have certain powers that Republican presidents don't. This is a radioactive idea in our politics. This is going to do enormous amount to, un to undo, to damage the concept of the rule of law. And I don't think the court, you know, John Roberts might think he's dodged a bullet on this one by of, of hurting the court's reputation with folks on the left. Well, he just took a big step towards hurting the court's reputation amongst people on the right. No, it's clearly the case. And a couple of follow-ups here. First of all, you mentioned uh, Obama. I remember Jim uh, leading up to the Obamacare decision. He actually went to the Rose Garden and said the Supreme Court has never overturned something passed by Congress and signed by the president, which is patently untrue. But here's Barack Obama's tweet today. Forget eight years ago. Here's what he's saying today. Eight years ago this week, we protected young people who were raised as part of our American family from deportation. Today, I'm happy for them, their families, and all of us. We may look different and come from everywhere, but what makes us American are our shared ideals. And then he goes into making a pitch for Joe Biden. Jim, if that had anything to do with it, uh, that would be a really nice thing to say. Is the question is whether it was constitutional and whether it's constitutional for President Trump uh, to reverse an executive order from a previous president. But if that's not depressing enough, I saw this on Twitter yesterday, which will make you want even more than three martinis today. Since January 20th, 1969, which is the end of the Lyndon Johnson administration. And just to put that into perspective, we hadn't landed on the moon yet, and the Jets had just been crowned world champions. So this is a while ago, right? 
Since then, 14 of 18 Supreme Court justices have been appointed by Republican presidents. And what do we have to show for it? Not nothing, but much less than people would think having 14 of 18 appointed by Republican presidents. Um, which, by the way, gives you this idea that Republicans are some sort of lockstep, uh, you know, drones on the court. You know, it's an utterly ridiculous, nonsensical argument. But um, this is going to do an enormous amount to empower the Saurabh Amaris of the world, who basically are going to say the entire game is rigged. The, you know, it doesn't matter how conservatives go about their goals. Other you know, progressives within government will figure out some way to overrule them. They will figure out some way to get leverage over the people, over judges. We can never win. Ergo, the whole system is uh, uh, not just flawed, but, um, you know, rigged and has no value. And as a result, we should get, you know, get rid of them. This is a very toxic mentality to have, but it's very hard to say based on decisions like this, that there isn't at least a little bit of truth to it. You don't want to scrap the entire system of, you know, uh, Western civilization and balance of uh, separation of powers, balance of powers and things like that. But, you know, as, as Chris Rock said about OJ, I'm not saying they should do it, but I understand. All right. Well, if you think Trump's not happy with the Supreme Court, let's talk about our crazy martini here because he's really not happy with his former national security advisor. It's Trump versus the mustache, Jim. Uh, some would say the walrus, but uh, John Bolton is finally publishing his book. The administration is trying to stop it, but they're trying a little late because it's already being mailed out to a bunch of people who pre-ordered it and media and so forth. And Bolton's going to have a big uh, interview with Martha Raddatz of ABC News over the weekend. And the Wall Street Journal published some excerpts yesterday, uh, including the suggestion that Trump uh, agreed with China building prison camps for Muslim Uyghurs when it was brought up as an issue with uh, Xi Jinping uh, with China, uh, the president even saying he supported the idea of building them. So he says that's not true. Bolton also says that Trump was soliciting re-election help from China. He also says that folks like Pompeo and the trade representative Bob Lighthizer have very low opinions of Trump. Both of those guys have fired back saying none of that is true. And so we're going to have a huge back and forth here. The liberals who detested John Bolton for decades now find him as their new hero, although they wish he would have spoken up during the impeachment process. And a lot of people who love John Bolton now assume he's lying through his teeth because these people want President Trump to get reelected. They don't want John Bolton's book to hurt them. So the White House has claimed that Bolton is both lying and revealing classified information. They say both of those can be true. What do we make of all this? Yeah. So when, when it was a little bit of a surprise when John Bolton signed on to become national security advisor to President Trump, uh, as I lay out in today's morning, Joel, these were two guys who, who knew darn well what they thought, who didn't necessarily agree on a great number of things. And it wasn't just like, oh, they've got a couple of disagreements here and there. It's like they disagreed on the sort of things that a president and national security advisor have to work together on. It wasn't like, you know, oh, you know, uh, differences on, on abortion or, or, you know, economics. No, no. National security <laughs> was a big part. Of, they had certain agreements on, the, you know, is both supportive of Israel, both of opposition to Iran, while, you know, Trump is, is really not a fan of NATO and other, you know, U.S. alliances. I think it's safe to say Bolton, you know, basically is not a fan of multilateralism and finds international institutions kind of uh, uh, hindering and, and uh, implicitly restricting American power. But by and large, these two guys did not see eye to eye, uh, particularly when it came to negotiations with uh, foreign leaders. And that is a good chunk of what we've heard out of Bolton's book so far. I suppose this is John Bolton doing what he needs to do. 
Greg, I think he's pretty convinced that, look, yes, these are private conversations with the president. Yes, these are something he has ever, you know, said in confidence to him. But Greg, I think he believes that this is so consequential. It's so shocking. It's so eye-popping what the president said and did when the country wasn't watching. Uh, Greg, I think John Bolton believes as a matter of principle, Americans need to hear about this after paying 3250 hardcover. Because <laughs> he wasn't going to say this in an impeachment hearing. Ah, oh, heck no, you know. Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Anybody who says, oh, if Bolton had come forward, this would have changed impeachment. No, it wasn't. You weren't going to get another 20 uh, Republican senators to jump on board for removing Trump from office just because of Bolton's testimony. I'm not, not finding that very plausible. The anecdotes are eye-popping, but they also don't exactly contradict anything we've seen from Trump before. It's not like there's anything you're like, oh, Trump wouldn't say something like that. But I'm still not entirely on board with it. And what I think, one of, the, one of my big reasons, Greg, is that this is really creating a very bad precedent. Maybe Trump is unlike any other president. You feel like he doesn't deserve the same kind of uh, uh, protections or you know, application of executive privilege or, or things like that uh, that other presidents do. But here's the thing. We've just seen a national security advisor come out with a tell-all book that paints the president in a terrible light that was driven by personal disagreements and political policy disagreements. And a couple months before election day, he has just said, here's everything I heard. Here is everything I seen. I feel no sense of obligation to at least wait for the history books or to wait until after he's out of office. It's pretty safe to say, I don't know whether John Bolton thinks Joe Biden should uh, be, be elected. He'll probably never put it explicitly. But he's said that, you know, uh, that Trump is incompetent, that Trump is uh, unworthy of the office, you know, stupefyingly ignorant and, and you know, would put, cannot distinguish between his personal, you know, it, it's, it's an anti-endorsement, right? I mean, you know, John Bolton does not believe Donald Trump should continue as president. So I, the question will be, do we, you know, or how comfortable are we in future administrations, Democrat or Republican, of any cabinet member having such a disagreement with the president that they immediately jump out and say, here's everything I saw, everything I heard. America needs to know everything, at least as I saw. There used to be at least be the decency you'd wait till the guy was out of office before you tell all. And now apparently you don't. I guess you could say we opened this door back when Robert Reich wrote Locked in the Cabinet, which was a not entirely flattering portrait of Bill Clinton, but it was mild compared to this. And I just kind of feel like if presidents are going to get the best advice, they need to know that what they're just, you know, executive privilege exists for a reason. And even if it doesn't apply to every conversation between John Bolton and Donald Trump, I think past presidents would be shocked by this. I think future presidents will have their lives greatly complicated by this. And I don't think John Bolton necessarily thought through the consequences of a move like this, of what happens now that he's created this precedent. Jim, are we going to see a virtual Democratic convention with John Bolton, Jim Mattis, and Rex Tillerson? I'd be intriguing. I, I, watching John Bolton speak at a Democratic convention and the reaction he would get would be kind <laughs> of fascinating. Like yesterday, we, we, you know, in yesterday's podcast, we talked about Kaepernick and the president came out and said, yeah, you know, if, he, if he's good enough, he should play. And I kind of waited for everybody in the sports world to suddenly change their views. <laughs> well, wow, Trump thinks he, uh, now ban the guy, blacklist the guy, a whole bunch of sports writers would say, you know, to hell with them, you know, and you know, Kaepernick comes out in a MAGA cap and all of a sudden everybody's heads explode. <laughs> uh, you know, the idea that nobody actually has any principles or, or actual fixed positions anymore, it's all done in relation to everybody else. Um, if Democrats really do warm, you know, uh, uh, feel warm and fuzzy towards John Bolton, the reviewers so far have not been. There, there's, there's been plenty of Democrats who've rumbled about this. But, um, 
it's number one on Amazon. So Greg, isn't it kind of appropriate that, you know, now it's 70 some years old, John Bolton finished his career by taking the money from a lot of liberals? You might as well, because he's not going to find a lot of friends on either side of the aisle at this point. I can't, I can't imagine. So, wow, this is not how I expected John Bolton's career to end. But uh, <laughs> 2020 is a strange year, man. What can I say? Uh, yeah. So who plays Bolton in the movie? Wilfred Brimley, of course. Oh, good choice. Good choice. <laughs> well, he's probably still only about 58 years old. But uh, you know the whole Wilfred Brimley cocoon line when celebrities reach the age where Wilfred Brimley played an old man in cocoon and it's like Jake Tapper. Uh, you know, people who you see as really young because Wilfred Brimley was young but looked really old back when cocoon was happening. So Deeply depressing, but yes. <laughs> Fascinating. Jim? You have earned this vacation perhaps more than any other in the history of this podcast. Uh, so enjoy the time, get tan, get rested, and we'll see you back here in a little over a week. See you a week from Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Also get us on those government surveillance devices you for some reason have in your homes and say play Three Martini Lunch podcast and join us again on Friday for the next three martini lunch.